For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn it to the book of Galatians. It's in the New Testament. If you don't have your Bible, it's in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, there are a few on the back table that we'd love to give to you. Go ahead and take one of those. Let's all address the elephant in the room. It is freezing in here. I'm sorry. That is one of the downsides of rented space. You don't get to control when the heat gets turned on, especially when it's a boiler. So um, it's not on yet. There we go. All right. So sorry about that. Um, This book, Galatians, is written from the premise that you and I were made uh, for freedom. The freedom that comes from a reconciled relationship with God. And as Christians, we believe that this is what we've been rescued for. In other words, this is what Jesus came to do. But even saying, uh, raising the question of rescue assumes something to be rescued from, right? It's amazing how much of the Bible simply assumes this reality. And it's amazing how much of our culture abhors such an idea. The idea that we would actually need rescue. This morning, though, that idea that we've been rescued And what we've been rescued from takes center stage in Paul's thought as we look to freedom from the curse. So if you have your place in Galatians chapter 3, if you'd stand, that's our our habit here, as we stand under the authority of God's word preached, we'll be reading chapter 3 verses 10 through 14. As we do so, let's just remember that this is God's word. It is given certainly out of love, but it is is given so that we might uh, live into it and receive it with love. So hear it in that way. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is God's Word, given so that we would flourish. Let's pray. Father, into this time we ask your presence uh, in, a, in a special way. Lord, it just doesn't matter what I have to say. It has very much, all that matters is what you have to say to us. And so we pray that you would press your word, your gospel, deep into our hearts. That you would come and you would preach it to us. That Christ, you and your cross would come forward. Let the one who speaks fall to the wayside and speak, O Lord. Please speak, for your servants are listening. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. We all have that image, right? It's the, it's the image, if I start to talk about these kind of things, the image of the sweaty, rather red-faced slightly balding preacher, the crazy southern drawl frothing a little bit at the mouth as he rails on uh, the immoral and their place 
in the fires of hell. Now, most of us hate that image, right? Some of us hate that image so much that we don't want to be associated with anything that might even begin to remind us of that. So that if there's good biblical teaching on something that reminds us of it, we want to be distant from it. Whether that's judgment or, or uh, fire or, um, or curse or condemnation. And we simply avoid it. We, we focus on the Jesus that doesn't throw stones. And we avoid the one who talks about a fire that never goes out. When we do this, though, there are two problems. The, the first is that we have to do gymnastics to avoid the many places in the Bible that speak of these truths. And you know what I mean by gymnastics, right? That's where you go, well, I, I, I believe what Jesus says here, but then in two or three verses or two or three chapters, you go, oh, but that, he couldn't have ever said that. It's gymnastics. Like, how are you going to work that out without backflips and somersaults of figuring out why your Jesus is better than the one that the Bible gives us? The second of those is that there are other words that we want to use, right? Good biblical words. Words like redeem and freed and, and, and saved and rescued. And those words begin to lose their meaning. And once those words have lost their meaning, what, Je- what Jesus has done for us begins to pale into some version of Jesus coming and doing his work so that our lives would be better or so that our community could be better and bad things could go away. But friends, we can't avoid this. And our passage uh, this morning pushes us not to, because to do so would be to avoid the great work of Jesus, because the great work of Jesus is that he bore our curse. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Three easy points. We're going to look at, in terms of the curse, we're going to look at what is it, why is it here, and how do we escape it? Okay, because that's what Paul talks about. What it is, why it's here, and how do we get away from it? Okay? So first, what is the curse? Look down at verse 10. Paul says, For as many as are under the law are under a curse, just as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all that is written in the book of the law to do it. All right. Now let's remember where we've come from. Okay? So if you're, if you're visiting with us, let me help you jump into where we're at. Last week, we saw in the very last verse of that passage, verse 9, uh, that Paul has just said that those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. And now he moves from blessing to curse. And he does this by quoting this Old Testament passage, uh, Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. And I'm sure that we're all very familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, but for those, you know, few of us, of course, who, who aren't, let me remind us about what that book is. The book of Deuteronomy is written um, when God's people have come out of Egypt, they've come out of Exodus, they've been redeemed from their slavery and their bondage to Pharaoh, they're on their way to the promised land, and, and there's a little you know, detour in the middle of that, a 40-year detour. But now they've come, and they're, they're waiting on the banks, literally of the Jordan, getting ready to go across the river into the land that God has promised them. And before they do, God gives them a, a covenant renewal, a, a renewal of the promise of, of their relationship with him, and lays out for them, this is the way life, in a, 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 a reconciled relationship with God will look like. And the end of Deuteronomy, uh, these last few chapters from which he's taking this, is a list of blessings and cursings. Okay? Blessings, if, the, if you live into that reconciled, rela- reconciled relationship with God, and, and curses if you as a people, not individual, as a people, do not. Okay? And those curses grow in severity. They are, the, the curses grow in severity because their purpose is not punitive as it is restorative. Their purpose is to get God's people's attention to get them to turn around. They are like God's increasingly louder voice of, Hey! Hey! Listen to me. 
until they turn around. And the, the, the epitome, the kind of the, the pinnacle of those curses, the last one possible, is this thing called exile. The removal of God's people from his presence. And this quote that Paul is drawing out of here at the end of Deuteronomy is telling us that the failure to continually do the law, and that's the force of the grammar there, uh, to continually do the law results in curse, results in exile, which is historically exactly what has happened. Okay? About 586 B.C., before Jesus came, God's people had been carried off into exile by the Babylonians. And they had, they, they had been gone until Cyrus, had, uh, the Persian king, had told them to come back in 539. But even since coming back, they still consider themselves in exile because they have no king. Uh, they're pagans that rule over them, and God's presence is not with them. They are still in exile. The curse still continues. Now, before I move on, I want to show how this fits into what Paul has been saying in the last few weeks. Remember, these churches in Galatia, that that part of what is now Turkey, have been tempted to believe that to be right before God, you have to do certain things, right? You have to follow certain practices. You have to keep certain rules. You have to abide under certain ceremonial ways. And Paul has already said that if you try and make yourself right before God by keeping the law, all you're really going to show is that you can't. But not only are you going to show that you can't, you're going to show something else. He's already shown that God credits righteousness to us, right? And we we heard last week that credit means to create a status that wasn't already there. He creates this status of righteousness to us when we lay our faith on his work to rescue us through Jesus. And now he says, if you try to place yourself under the law, all it will do is not just show that you can't keep it, but end up cursing you. Because that, you you can't keep it. And that's that's what it brings with it when it can't be kept. Curse. All right? Now, that's what the exile is. It's a curse. But now we need to look at, I mean, let's be honest. We talk about exile, and that doesn't mean anything to most of us. We're a transient culture. Like, we, we drive forever. We, we, we don't mind doing that. And, 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 and plus, we think of exile from God's presence. Like, doesn't God exist everywhere? Like, what's the big deal? Well, stick with me. Exile isn't just an event. It's a theme that runs through Scripture. And throughout the Bible, it's an even bigger deal than I think it was even for Jews in the first century. But to get that, we have to see what it's all about. Because the Old Testament, the Bible as a whole, understands that though God exists everywhere, and we call that his omnipresence, right? He exists in all places, that his special presence exists in certain places, Okay, and in, in, in the very beginning, he existed in a garden, and then uh, that was where he walked in the cool of the day, where his people would meet with him and, and be with him. And then uh, later on, when God had pulled his people out of, out of Egypt through Exodus, it began, his special presence went with them in the form of this thing called the tabernacles, a glorified tent. And wherever it went, he went. And, and then later, when they came into the land, it was in the temple. The temple. And in the Old Testament, the temple is the place where you meet with God. The temple is the place where his presence is. The temple is the place where you find forgiveness of sins. Where if you've had a conflict with someone else in the community, you go there for reconciliation. It it is central to your life. And to be removed from that, to be removed from God's special presence, is no little thing. It's a huge thing. You were, in a very real sense, removed from the loving presence of God. 
And so that exile that happened in 586, the exile that Jews during Paul's day still felt under, that was one exile, but it pointed to another one, a one that happened much earlier than that. And, and, and kind of in the same way that God's people had been given a law and they didn't keep it and out they went. And that was in the garden, right? Adam and Eve in the, in the, in the, in the place where God had chosen to dwell, where he walked with them in joy, a place of perfect provision. But when they betrayed him, they were exiled. But in the Bible, though, even that exile is only a picture. Because when Jesus came on the scene, he began to speak explicitly about a greater exile, a greater curse, one that is present for all who persist in rebellion against God. And Jesus called that exile hell. It is the absence of God's loving presence. Absence of the presence that you and I were made to flourish in. The absence of which there is no love or joy or goodness. Now, as I say that, many of us take significant issue with that, right? Because we we find ourselves thinking, how could a loving God create such a place in the first place and send people there in the second, right? So let me say two things about that before we move on. First, I would argue, and the scriptures do as well, that believing in a loving God necessitates the existence of hell. It necessitates it, okay? Here's why. The Bible argues that God's anger, his, what it calls his wrath, that, that that comes because it comes out of his love for his creation. It's not just uh, something that comes because he rages off the handle at little things. It comes out of love for his creation, specifically out of his love for those who were made in his image. And so when we deface, dehumanize, and defame those who are made in God's image, he becomes angry including when we deface, dehumanize, and and defame ourselves. He becomes angry, just like you do. Just like you do. To refuse to believe in the biblical doctrine of hell would be to believe that God cares nothing for injustice and that he will do nothing about it. And undoubtedly, if that's the case, and you look around and you see women and children sold into slavery, and you see, you see uh, people in bondage to, to addictions that they can't seem to control, that are furthered by others who are preying on them and making money off of their addictions, and, and then you see uh, just rampant evil in the world, and you don't believe that God is going to do something about it, what are you left to do? Your only other option is to pick up a weapon and do something yourself. To not believe in a God who actually will make things right forces you into the position of having to do it yourself. And it does so because you cannot lay your trust in a God who will, out of love for all that has been wronged, make things right. But second, though, we tend to not like the idea of hell because of the popular image of hell, which, which has more to do with medieval paintings and I, I think things like the movie Ghost, right? And by that I mean, you know, when the bad guy dies and the shadow creatures come up and they drag him, he's clawing at the floor, like, no, no, and they're dragging him, like, come with us, and they drag him into the shadows, and we think, that's terrible, and that, why, why would a loving God do something like that? Well, the reality is that that's not biblical. The biblical reality is actually more terrifying than that, but not for the reasons you may think. Because you see, the biblical image isn't that 
we get dragged away from God's presence, but that we desire to be away from God's presence. Not that we run, we get pulled kicking and screaming, but that we march defiantly and proudly away from God's presence. In, in, in uh, Luke 16, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man who doesn't even have a name, uh, which, is, which is interesting. And, and in that story, which is just a parable, right? You can't base an entire theology off of a parable, but it does give us some sense of how Jesus understood um, the reality of these things. And so the rich man is in in, it gives us the image of the rich man in hell, in, in this place where he's bearing up under, the, under judgment. And he is so consumed by his self-centeredness that he asks God to make someone else serve him. Can you get that brother to give me a drink because I'm thirsty and he's not doing anything in heaven. Get, can he just give me a drink? He's consumed by his self-centeredness. Romans 1, Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the, the judgment of God is not that he comes and squishes us into something because we've, we've wronged him, but, because, but he hands us over, gives us over to the desire of our hearts so that we walk more fully into that that we want. He gives us what we want, and that is his judgment to us. We want away from him, and he gives us over to it. Pastor Tim Keller at Redeemer uh, PCA in, in Manhattan puts it this way. In short, hell, he says, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. And C.S. Lewis uh, says it this way. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. And so the exile of exiles, the, the, the full exile that all of the ones in history point to, is an eternity spent basking in our independence from the God we were made for relationship with, separated from the source of all joy and goodness and beauty and truth. And it is an eternity that apart from him, we actually desire because we hate being dependent on him, needing him, and being under his authority. As John Milton wrote into the mouth of Satan in Paradise Lost, we all believe that it is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. That's what it is. Now let's look at why it's here. Look down at verses 11 and 12. Paul says this. Now it is evident that no one will be justified before God through the law for The righteous will live out of faith, and the law is not of faith, but instead the one who does it will live in it. All right, now this can be a little confusing. There are very few of us who will look around at the world and think, yeah, this place is great, nothing wrong here, everything's beautiful, everything's wonderful. We know something is wrong, and and in in addition, though we're loath to admit it, we know that something's wrong in us. And there also seems to be something in us that thinks if it's going to be right, if I'm going to be right, then I'm just going to have to work a little harder. I've got to, I've got to uh, find a way to, to measure up. Now, we all have different definitions of what measuring up means, right? For some of us, it's keeping good middle-class morality. A lot of us have that. For others of us, it's, it's, it's uh, being tolerant, right? We need to be tolerant of uh, almost everyone, except intolerant people. I can't tolerate intolerant people. Like, we can't tolerate them. But for others of us, it's, it's not uh, that kind of morality. It's more like, I need to be best. I need to be the best at what I do. I'm going to be best at my job so that 
I will measure up as a businessman, as a, uh, an attorney, as, as, a, as a mom, right? Or maybe it's a sport or what have you, right? The point is, we seem to know we don't measure up, and we think we need to work to get there. And the Bible would have us believe, it, it would tell us, that this is because we were made for a different life than the one we have. We were made for a dependent relationship on God, where we find in Him our value, our worth, our, our understanding of right and wrong, our view of the universe, our, our wisdom, our truth, everything. But the problem is we've left that behind. And the Bible is also clear that everyone now by nature has turned away from that, is, is seeking independence from God. We refuse dependence on him. We don't want it. And it's not because we've done something so much as it's who we are. It's it's what's internal in us. So we turn from God and betray him. We want to be the captains of our own fate. We want to be the masters of our own soul. And when we betray him, which is what the Bible calls sin, we find that we don't measure up. And that is why you and I have that sense that just something ain't right. We're just something, we just aren't right. It's because we aren't. And so like everything else, we've decided, well, if that's going to be the case, then I'm just going to have to measure up. I'll have to do better. I'll have to pull myself up. And so is born religion. Man's attempt to be right before God by measuring up himself. But see, here's the problem. We want to measure up. But we don't want to be dependent on God. We don't want relationship with him. We just want rightness. We don't want him. We just want his stuff. But the first of God's commandments is to love him, to worship him. In other words, to be in relationship with him. So at the very beginning, if we want to try and measure up without getting near to God, not without being in relationship with God, we already have lost it. We've already broken it. We try to keep God's law independent of him, and we can't. And that is why Paul says, no one will be justified through the law. You can't keep it. Our attempts at law law keeping make it about doing, about working, about about an economic relationship. (laughs) Paul says, this isn't of faith. And then he quotes that Old Testament verse there, Habakkuk 2.4, that that the righteous will live by faith. That whole book, that whole section in the the prophet Habakkuk is talking about the fact that judgment is coming and will people people move through it, get through it by doing better, by working harder? No, no, no. prophet says, no, no, the righteous will live by faith. The same thing that Paul's talking about here. Paul is saying the curse is here because you and I have betrayed God. Both the curse of exile, the thing that they're living under right now, And the curse that the exile points to, hell. We don't measure up. And trying harder is not going to do it. It's that our relationship with God is broken by our sin. And trying hard to clean ourselves up does nothing to repair the relationship. Listen, I use this analogy a lot, but we need to hear it again. It would be like... If, you would, if, you're, if you're married and you commit adultery on your spouse and the next day the, your spouse knows about what you did and the next day you go home and you, you try and you do the dishes and you're trying to clean up the yard and you're trying to make everything nice and you're doing everything that a good spouse should do except being true to your vows. You can't make it better because you haven't dealt with the relationship. 
Keeping the rules won't make it right. And now I say that and we get angry, right? Because we think to ourselves, why would God give me a rule that he knows I can't keep? Why would he say do this if he knows I can't? What kind of manipulative monster is he to give me a standard he knows I can't keep? And then when I can't keep it, he sends me off to hell. Like what, what is that? See, the problem is we don't understand what the law is for. We think that God gives this to us so that we can work hard and then he'll give us life, right? Because that's how religion works. I do this, he gives me that. That's how pretty much most of us, if we're being honest, that's what we want out of life. Show me what I have to do to get what I want and then I'll be good. And we apply that to God, but God isn't interested in that. That's not the point at all. God's law has a, has, has a few uses and m- m- many theologians will point to three, okay? First and foremost, what the law does, what God's law does, is it reveals God to us. It reveals, it's it's reflective of his character. So you don't commit adultery, not just because adultery is bad, but because he's a God who keeps his promises. And we're made to be in his image. We don't steal, not because just stealing is bad, but because God is a giver, not a taker. And so because it reflects God's character and we are made in his image, it is supposed to be true of us. It is the life we were made for. Second, because we can't keep it, it shows us our need for a Savior. And then lastly, it restrains our sin. Uh, And so, knowing this, it's also important for us to place this law into the context of the story. When did God give his people that law? It wasn't before he redeemed them. I mean, think with me. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. And most of the time, what we think is God brings Moses to them. He sends Moses to them. Go give him my rules. Moses goes, he gives them the rules. He says, okay, when you keep that, I'll I'll, I'll save you. When you keep that, when you can do good enough, I'm going to come in and I'm going to rescue you from your slavery and your bondage and you'll be my people. No, God redeems them, pulls them out of their slavery, says, you're mine because I love you. And he brings them and he says, and now here's what a redeemed, reconciled life with me will look like. The law says to us, here is the life you were made for. We look at that and we say, I can't do that. And God says to us, exactly. That is why you need me. We think the law, we think the the, the rules are there to earn God's favor. But if you work hard apart from him, listen to me. If you work hard apart from him, you are still apart from him. (laughs) He wants us. So, the curse is bad. We are all liable to it. How do we escape it? Look down at verse 13. This is the center of the passage. Paul says this. Christ has set us free from the curse of the law by becoming a curse on our behalf. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Okay? Here's the thing we forget about God, folks. God is a person. We want to think of him like a math problem. You know? Like, here's his side of the equation and all we got to do is balance our side. And it's going to be okay. And then the, the equation's balanced. We're all good. Uh, you know, got to find the, got to find X. Got to find that. All right. But we can't get around this curse. That curse is what we've earned. We get upset about the world, that the world isn't right. And in the midst of our anger and our being upset that the world isn't right, we conveniently forget that we're part of the problem. The good news is that God isn't asking us to get things right, and he isn't asking us to balance the equation. 
Okay? He promised to do it himself and he accomplished it in Jesus. And Paul says that Jesus set us free, redeemed us from the curse. That is slavery language, right? You redeem someone from slavery, which is purchasing them out of that. What he means, the image that he's painting here is that you and I were hell bound, chained to our desire for independence. But Jesus broke those chains and he rescued us. And he did it not by simply canceling out the curse, being like, uh, you know, don't worry about that. That was, that was just there to scare you. It wasn't real. Like, I just, you just, we'll just move that aside and you'll come with me. He didn't cancel it because you can't make a betrayal go away. He didn't cancel it. He bore it himself. He became a curse for us. That's what Paul says here. Jesus became a curse in our place, on our behalf. That's language of substitution. He took that spot. In other words, God ask, isn't asking you to work hard enough to get out of the curse. You can't. Instead, he came in the person of Jesus to bear the curse for you. That is what the cross is. That is what the cross is. Jesus died to bear hell for us. We deserve to be cut off from God. We deserve to be separated from him, to bear his anger for betraying him, for turning from him. And so Jesus took that. Listen, Jesus' death wasn't just some example of human cruelty. If you want examples of human cruelty, there are plenty of examples you could have. Romans crucified people all the time. Like, if there was a city and it rebelled against Rome, then every street coming in and going out of the city for weeks would be lined with crosses filled with people in the process of dying. Because it took days. Romans had plenty of examples of human cruelty. Jesus' is not, Jesus' death is not an example of human cruelty. He willingly died to bear the judgment we were due. And in doing so, he took all of it. All of it. Listen to me. Jesus' work on the cross didn't just bear the curse for you for a few things. Or just for the things that were. But then there's the things that are. And then there's the things that will be. No. He took all of it. What you deserved, he took. So that what he deserved, you could have. What you deserve, he took. So that what he deserved, you could have. He hung on that wooden cross, on that tree, as Paul calls it, calls it, suspended between heaven and earth, rejected by both, and he did so in your place, in my place. Friends, the curse is very real. The only question is who will bear it? Will it be you? Or will it be Jesus in your place? And that brings us finally to returning to faith. Listen, those false teachers that Paul is trying to combat in this letter, that, that had come and had come into these churches, they distorted things, and they were claiming that you can't please God apart from the law. Like, Paul has told them that actually submitting to the law to make you right before God simply shows that you can't, and this, thus you'll be under a curse. You want to please God with the law? Guess what? You, you can't do it. You're going to be under a curse if you want to try and make yourself right before him with it. The way to be right before God, to remove the real offense that our sin has created by placing our faith in Jesus. And when we do, Paul says in verse 14, two things happen. The blessing of Abraham comes to us and we receive the promised Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have a bunch of time to go into that, but this is talking about a reconciled relationship with God. Remember last week, we talked about the blessing of Abraham had to do with uh, the life of flourishing that we were made for. That's what was coming through Abraham. And, And the promised Holy Spirit is about God coming to dwell in us. This is about a reconciled relationship with God. And that is what this is all about. The curse is about separation from God. It's about being removed from his presence. 
And so having that dealt with is not avoiding judgment and God, right? As if, as if you, you know, kind of like, well, good, I took care of that. Now, um, see you later. Like, that was good. I'm glad you handled that for me. He, he, Jesus is not the get-out-of-jail-free card. They're like, good, now I can go do whatever I want. This is fantastic, and I hate God anyway. Like, this is, it's, it's, it's about reconciled relationship with him. When we place our faith in Jesus, we're, place, we're, we're returning to the life we were made for, being restored to the God that we've betrayed. Now, two things I want to say about this. Some of us are here this morning and we've never placed our faith in Jesus. We think we have. Some of us think we have, but we haven't. Others of us, we know we haven't. Like, we're, we're here still investigating or we're, we're hesitant because of doubts, right? And that's great. Like, this is the place to investigate. Honestly, like, I am not afraid of your honest investigation of the claims of Christ because I will tell you, under an honest investigation of the claims of Christ, you will never come to the point where you say, this is all BS. It will always be this is the Lord. And this is also a great place for doubt because we have them too. And, and you're never going to see Jesus is bigger than your doubts unless you come somewhere where Jesus is proclaimed. So th- that's what we want to have here. But at the same time, I need to get real with you for a minute. Hell is real. Eternity is forever. And I do not want that for you. I do not want that for you. Paul is telling you that Jesus can bear your curse. He can. But you have to place your faith in him. You know your ways aren't working, right? You know they're not. Because you're constantly wondering yourself, is it enough? I mean, part of the curse is that kind of psychological insecurity of, have I done enough? Have I done enough? And Paul is telling you, the Bible is telling you, I'm telling you, no, you haven't. And no, you can't. But Jesus is enough for you. You don't have to. Jesus is enough. Place your faith in Christ. He isn't asking you to clean yourself up. If he was, he wouldn't have died. Just trust in him. But others of you have, okay? Most of us, my guess is most of us in this room have trusted in Jesus. And and you're thinking to yourself right now, you're like, Rick, we have to talk about this again? Like, I got this. Dude, I was eight. I walked the aisle. It was cool. It was fine. I did that or whatever. Like, I I got this. Do you? Do you? Yet you feel this need to punish yourself when you fail. I did wrong, and so now I have to... I got to mope around, or I got to heap shame on myself, or feel guilty for weeks, or, or worse. Listen to me. Jesus' work is enough. It is enough. God isn't asking you to feel guilty for days. God isn't asking you to pile shame on your back. He's certainly not asking you to abuse yourself, whether that's internally and verbally, or that's externally and physically. Right? Because we do this. And you know what that's like? That's like coming to the foot of the cross, seeing Jesus paying for your sin, realizing you've failed and going, yeah, I get what you're doing, but I got this. I got this. I don't need you. I got to clean my, I, okay, I need you a little bit, but first I got to do this. I got to work this up and then, and then I'll come back to you. He's enough. He's enough. Jesus paid for your failures. He bore your curse. Every sin 
every angry outburst, every selfishness, every uh, lustful thought, everything he bore. Just rest in Jesus. He's enough to reconcile us to God. He's enough. And any attempt that we have at trying to say that, well, I'm just going to do the shame thing for a little while. I'm going to do the guilt thing for a little while. All that is is telling him you're not enough and I can do this on my own. Thank you very much. Just rest in Jesus. He is enough. His work is enough to reconcile us to God so that there is no offense left. Would you pray with me? Father, your grace is great. It is greater than our sin. But our eyes become fixated only on what we have done and we lower our eyes and do not see you. And so, Lord, we pray. I pray for my friends here today. I pray for those of us who have never trusted in Christ, whether that's because we're new to church or whether because all of a sudden we're realizing that though we've been coming to church our whole lives, we don't know you. Lord, I pray that you would work to Give us faith to rescue us. And for the rest of us who have trusted in you and yet seem hell-bent on paying for our own sin, on atoning for ourselves, I pray that you would work, that you would help us, Lord, to rest fully in the perfect and finished work of Jesus because you are enough for us. This all we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.